Listen to the music of the night. And welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of everyone's favorite Halloween celebration, Horror Fest, here with the Phantom Correspondence. Um, the the majestic, angelic voice you just heard um, it belongs to me, your host, Al, also known as Red Lanyard. And um, my um, angelic tones are soon to be joined by my constant companion and co-host, um, Joshua Hardesty, the wise sage. Josh, tell everybody at home how you're feeling tonight. I'm feeling really good. Uh, I'm definitely not in a darkness deep as hell. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good today. I am. I'm really good. Hey, man, that's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> my favorite line, I got to be honest. Uh, now, um, in case everybody at home can't tell what we're covering um, tonight, um, can I just say that you lack <coughs> any culture in your life whatsoever. But um, we are covering uh, the 2004 film adaptation, Phantom of the Opera, a first for Phantom Horror Fest in that we are covering a full-on musical this Halloween spooky season. Now, um, Josh, are you um, a big fan of musicals in general? Oh, I think you know I am. I think you know I am, dude. I've, I've, uh, I think there was a point in my life where I was just sending random, uh, random messages to our Phantom Correspondence uh, message group, talking about the the point of Cats and how the movie didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know i've cornered many a people with that um so so you know I, but I, i'm a i'm a pretty big fan of musicals pretty big fan of of really got into you know trying to understand uh you know the the culture of broadway and stuff like that recently and so yeah i, I gotta be honest with you al when we started horror fest never in my mind did i think that we would be doing an andrew lloyd weber musical but here we are well i mean Look how far we come. It's exactly. It's, it's just incredible. Um, but uh, yeah, man. Like uh, I'm also a fan of musicals as well. Um, I say I'm a bit more casual of a fan than Josh is. I think Josh kind of has me beat as far as just like the knowledge and experience um, of that genre. But um, this one in particular, though, uh, Phantom of the Opera. Um, is one that was a really big part of my childhood just because um, I had a sister who was really, really into this film. And so we had it on TVD and pretty much every night that I did not have anything going on. Um, I just kind of watch this alongside her, just kind of absorb on the story and on the soundtrack that way. Um, however, that being said, it had been pretty much over a decade since I had watched this. Um, and the reason why it came up, for those of you kind of scratching your heads as to why we're doing Handum of the Opera for Horror Fest, is that uh, this was a suggestion from my wonderful and beautiful and smart um, wife. Um, so, Alyssa, thank you very much for this suggestion, because I think this will be a very fun episode. Um, though, Josh, I'm going to have to tell you right now, I'm going to get very real with you, okay? This could be the most potentially dangerous episode that we've ever done of this, of this entire podcast in general, and the correspondence. Hmm. And do you know why I say that? 
I'm assuming you're getting ready to say something possibly silly and not like the fact that we're like dealing with like stalkers and like implied pedophilia and stuff like that, right? Well, sure. All of those <laughs> things, very, <laughs> very relevant, sure. But the reason I say that uh, today, and I'm being quite serious as well, is that um, I am a firm believer in the idea that hell hath no fury like an angry um, former drama nerd. And so um, any drama kids out there, any theater kids who are like hanging out and doing whatever you're up to, um, if you hear this and listen to this, um, if we do not express the the well-trodden um, views and analyses of Phantom of the Opera that you have so long kind of come to embrace and entertain and obsess over then um i'll go ahead and apologize now i personally am not a theater kid i wasn't i didn't do a whole lot of drama stuff at any point um in my life um um, josh i think you might have a bit more theater experience than i do just through like uh, the church productions and things like that am i right about that yeah more more straight choir than theater really i mean I, i was in like some like plays when i was younger and stuff like that but like uh, mostly, mostly just like choir. Um, so like, I mean, I understand like how, you know, and I, I, and even you, I think would understand, like, I mean, you, you pro, I would assume we both know enough. Know Emmy Rossum's a, a soprano in this and, you know, Patrick Wilson's a tenor and Gerard Butler is just yelling at people, you know, he, so, he is Gerard Butler. Yeah. He's Gerard <laughs> Butler. He's not really, he's not really following any type of, of musical notation. Um, as which might actually be by design, actually, I don't know, we can talk about that later, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a, a probably a very, a very good general knowledge of, of this type of musical production, but uh, probably I've never really worked on anything this big, of course, or anything like that. Sure, yeah, yeah, and so to all of you out there, all of the theater kids and drama nerds out there, um, um, I appreciate you, I love you so much. Um, I mean that in a very genuine way as well. I don't think I've ever encountered a theater kid as an adult who I didn't like. Um, but all that being said, uh, this is not a show where Josh and I try to dissect and analyze um, a musical for what it is. So what this show tonight is going to be, and what I thought would be very interesting and very fun and kind of unique, is to try to examine um, this fantastic musical production uh, under the lens of being a horror film. Um, More specifically, I thought it'd be fun if we kind of uh, discuss this as if it were a a slasher flick. Um, and kind of compared different themes that occur in both kind of genres, um, kind of compare, contrast the the typical roles that pop up in slasher flicks with what we have here in 2014, Phantom of the Opera. And we'll just kind of see where that goes and see what kind of parallels can be drawn. Um, so hopefully you all out there um, are down for that. Um, and you can enjoy this ride through, through Phantom of the Opera with us. Um, so we will go ahead and hop to what I would like to describe as 
the the framework of this film if we are kind of approaching it under the lens of like kind of a slasher type of story um, that's being told and if we approach it like that um you know there's this idea within slasher flicks that the setting of it is often very important because it sets things up for you to understand kind of who the players are kind of understand what the environment is going to be kind of understand on uh, the different flavors that are going to be kind of popping up throughout the film and i think that um, honestly applies here so this is a a film that is primarily um i say um taking place in the 1800s um i believe it stretches between late 1870 to early 1871 um specifically um of france it is it is taking place at an opera house it is in 19th century france france so the french revolution or as i like to call the the icy period of france um is over and past um and so we are kind of put into this introduction of really not a whole lot of information if you're not already familiar with the story going on. So we know that there is a theater that hosts opera. We know that it has recently changed hands for ownership. We know that um, Emily Rossum's character, Christine, is kind of a background singer and answer who is kind of being thrust into the spotlight here and we know that um supposedly it is haunted and that's about all the information we have about this film now um the film technically opens a bit into the future um and um i believe it opens on 1919 i want to say um, which I will be completely honest, I forgot about the fact that the time kind of ch changes in and out uh, with this film. That is not something I recall going into it. But uh, what it does is it gives us a glimpse into the future of a couple of the characters that we gradually see and kind of learn about and kind of <laughs> feeds us some intrigue as to what is going to happen to our cast of characters. Um, so now... Uh, we take that framework and to me, um, trying to erase everything I know about the film in my mind and view it as a slasher film or view it as a traditional horror film, this tells me that there will probably be a bunch of ch chump scares. There will probably be a lot of ch ch chases and they, will, and they will be expected, you know, if we're treating it as a slasher film to be a lot of blood we don't really get a whole lot of that um in this film um however despite the lack of those kind of traditional horror films that kind of raise the tension and raise the stakes there is kind of this air of tension throughout the story as it plays out so um i'll toss it over to josh um and ask him um what kind of stood out to you especially in that first half hour or so of the film as far as ways that a more tense atmosphere was kind of um, <coughs> instigated and how it kind of carried throughout the film and and how they went about kind of accomplishing that yeah i mean there's um th there's a lot of things that stand out in the early uh, part of it of course you the 
the set design in this movie is really good. It's a Joel Schumacher film, so you know it's going to be over the top, and it needs to be. This is a very over the top musical, um, very very bombastic. Um, you know, this was Andrew Lloyd Webber's kind of kind of uh, poking fun of opera kind of thing. So he's he's being extremely dramatic, and that's why all the characters act extremely dramatic. And you know, there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot to take in early on. Um, you know, you didn't really mention many drivers, uh, Carlotta, or if you did, I, I missed it. Um, she's a very, she's a, she's hilarious in this opening uh, scene. <laughs> and she's the first person that something bad happens to, too. <clears throat> um, you know, because um, just, just in, just in a hilarious, like, you know, film critic, you know, slash playwright critic way. Uh, the phantom just cannot stand her and tries <laughs> to drop a curtain on her uh, within, you know, within seconds of the film or within minutes of the film opening. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to take in here. Um, but I, you know, I, I do think, you know, the, the movie and the play both do a really good job of really keeping the phantom uh, in a in a secretive way to where people are kind of talking about him, you know, like the ghost mm-hmm. of the opera. You've got um, uh, Madame Guri who, you know, uh, is like, you know, he sent this to you, you know, and like there's these like letters that are sent, you know, and this idea of like the press box or the, uh, the bo- you know, box seat number five, you know, it's always yeah. open for him. Uh, you know, this the, it, it does create this kind of uh, aura around this character um and uh and so it does it 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 allows what it does of course is it allows the opera house uh which is you know where he's at and where you know everything pretty much takes place except for that nice little jaunt around the world there for a bit but like where everything takes place uh, it allows it to be a character as well and you know by the time by the time this movie's over uh, the opera house is one of the main characters of it but due to all of the secrets that it has uh, by like by that I mean like literal secret passages and stuff like that that only the Phantom knows. Um, so yeah, I mean the the movie sets sets a pretty good uh, uh, sets, a, sets a gives a pretty good foundation of that. Even without telling us a whole lot of stuff, um, there's still a lot that we can glean just from what we're being shown. Uh, and I'm a real you know we talk about a horror movies a lot. I'm, I'm being a big fan of Show Not Tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what this does and even in the in the play it's even better because like you get uh when you're watching on the uh, when you're watching the play there's like all these moments where you will catch glimpses of the phantom um, but he does not appear uh until that that moment where he appears to christine in the uh in the mirror you know mm-hmm. and so you know it's it's it, it's it's set up pretty well and um you know it's 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 how it, it's a it's a really good um, a, a really good kind, a really, a really solid way of creating a character that's bigger than life, mm-hmm. uh, and making him seem, you know, um, making him seem like almost omniscient, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, no, uh, very, very solid opening all the way around. Yeah, yeah, it, it does a really good job of kind of setting that tone and. Um, and one of the ways which you kind of alluded to um, is that um, it kind of uses a tool that's often utilized um, in Asher films and that, um, you know, the 
villain, the antagonist, is is kind of alluded to uh, by different characters and um, very vague kind of scraps about who the villain is, um, where he came from, kind of the the urban legend about them. Um, small seeds about that is kind of like scattered early on in the film. And then as you go through the story, um, a lot of that um, is revealed a bit more and um, you kind of learn more about the threat um, that our characters are dealing with. And so it was kind of fun to see that um, be kind of a parallel to how a lot of um, Hatcher films are handled as well. You know, you have this idea with like Hype Me on Elm Street, you know, there's um, a vague reference to who Freddy Krueger is as this entity that was like um, this old pervert who got killed and now he haunts the dreams of kids. And then as the story goes on, you learn a bit more about his story. Um, And then the same kind of thing happens here with the Phantom. So I thought that was kind of a fun kind of thing that popped up as I kind of changed the lens through which I try to watch this. Um, Now, um, that does lead us now as far as talking about tone and as far as talking about kind of that early introduction to who the antagonist of the story is going to be. Uh, That brings us to arguably the most critical part of this story um, and probably to stories at large, but especially, um, in my opinion, to slasher stories and films, is our cast of survivors and possible victims. Um, Now, way back in the day, when Josh and I first started Horror Fest, um, way, way back in the day when we were all young men, um, we talked about a little film called Friday the 13th. And we talked about, um, specifically Josh brought up, how in Friday the 13th, and a lot of those early kind of slasher films in general, you're introduced to a cast of characters. And the characters, at least a majority of them, are presented in such a way that you quickly find yourself rooting for the slasher to kill these characters because they're presented to be either really irritating or really stupid or really mean or whatever it might be and kind of your your frustration with these characters grows until either you uh, find yourself on the side of rooting for the one character who's kind of redeemable or rooting for the slasher themselves and so we talked about that um way back when and i think in my opinion we'll Hey, Josh, if you agree or disagree here, I think that same kind of idea is applied here. Um, Because for me, throughout this film, I found myself really struggling to care about any character other than Christine. (laughs) Because everybody else in this film are either um, just kind of there. I'm thinking of um, Egg Jury who is um, who was great with her role, but there wasn't a whole lot to know about her character. She just kind of exists to talk to Christine. We have um, 
or Ada as well, who is both great for comedy purposes, but is one of the most irritating characters I have ever seen. She gave me very strong vibes of um, the guy from the original of Friday the 13th who screams and dances around in like a Native American headdress. <laughs> I got yeah, um, real vibes. <laughs> yeah, I got the uh, very similar vibes there. Probably not to that same extent as him, but definitely just like her arrogance, her sense of self-importance and self-absorption, things like that, obviously serves to kind of show the role that she's playing, but still uh, at that very effective at being a character that you kind of want to root against in contrast of rooting for Christine. Um, and then you have Raul. Um, I will be honest here, I have not read the book that this is based on. The book could go into Raul a lot more. But Raul, played by Patrick Wilson, who from this point on went on to become just a horror icon in his own right, Right. Um, which was a lot of fun to see. Uh, we have Raul, who, I mean, I want to like Raul. Um, I want to like the fact that, like, I'm hanging out with Patrick Wilson with, like, long, long-flowing French hair, um, putting zero effort into trying to do a French accent. Um, <laughs> I want to like him. But you aren't told a lot of information about Raul. Uh, the only thing you really know about him is that he seems to be very rich, um, specifically coming from his family, because you're giving the information that um, Christine had gone and um, stayed at his family's estate uh, when they were kids and things like that. So he's very rich. He's like uh, the head patron of this theater. Um, he seems to be in love with Christine, uh, presumably kind of carrying over feelings that he had when they were in their youths. Um, and that he's randomly really good with a sword. And that's about all you really know about Rule. Uh, <laughs> so I want to like him, but really the main reason we've been given to side with Rule in terms of opposing the Phantom is that the Phantom is out here um, killing folks and Rule is not. And while that does draw a pretty clear line there, there's nothing inherently interesting or charismatic about who Raul is in this. So you have this setup where the only character that is shown to be particularly interesting or particularly um, um, relatable in any way is um, Amy Rossum. And so this to me is kind of a parallel again, where you have this cast of characters and they're presented to be either really bland or really unlikable so that you find yourself kind of swaying either to the final girl or to the, or to the antagonist himself. Um, um, Josh, do you have any uh, thoughts or takes on that kind of parallel that I've seen or, or possibly invented out of my own insanity? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts and takes on that because the thing is, is, you know, once again, this is a, this, you know, when you, when you really dive into Andrew Lloyd Webber, 
one of the things you really start to understand is like his most earnest film is probably Cats, which is hilarious to say. <laughs> and this is not what I would describe as an earnest film. This is a very there's a lot of sarcasm here and there's a lot of poking fun at things here. Um I don't think you're supposed to side of Raul. I don't think you're really supposed to like Raul. I really don't. He's he is by design boring. You know, there's a there's a sense that, you know, I I, I don't want to get too much in the author's intentions here, but there's a sense where Andrew Lloyd Webber is basically making a statement about about the quote unquote typical leading man, um, which is which is the hilarious part here because Raul doesn't get a whole lot of like. He gets a pretty bland, like, love song, you know? Mm-hmm. He doesn't sure. get a whole lot of fun parts, you know? Most of his, you know, most of his, you know, the songs he gets are, you know, just him being like, Christine, you know? You know, like, oh, let me love Christine, you know? And just, like, it's it's like very, <laughs> you know, like, he's, he's very much from, from the outside looking in to what, in my opinion, we're supposed to believe is the better love story, which is the one between the Phantom and uh, Christine. Now... I'm going to go and bring this up right now. That is problematic in a lot of ways. And Andrew Lloyd Webber gets a, gets a lot of probably due criticism for how he portrays it because he's never really shied away from the fact that the love story is the Phantom and Christine, even though, you know, when he wrote the play, the concept is the Phantom is like, 45 years old and Christine's like 16 to 17. Right. And when, when he, um, when Joel Schumacher cast Gerard Butler, you know, his one critique was that Gerard Butler wasn't old enough. And Gerard Butler was 34 making this film. And Emmy Rostam was 18. Right. So, yeah. you know, like there's, you know, the, that is something that you, you, you need to be aware of when you're watching this film um, because it is definitely, uh, definitely a film that really romanticizes this idea of a a older lover, a, a older lover and a younger, you know, kind of ingenue kind of thing. The other thing it romanticizes, um, you know, is this idea of the uh, the playwright and the muse, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and so, you know, so when you when you see though when you think when you take into into account those two things, that is why all the other characters are really annoying. Um, you know, I mean, like you know, you're right, the Guries aren't aren't annoying, but that's why Raul is the way he is. You know, because mm-hmm. there's a, I mean, the first the first thing you know, like what this first like what's the first line this this this. Uh, this petulant boy, this folly of fashion, you know, or something like that. When, like, when, uh, when the Phantom's talking about him, yeah, like he's like the the insults there are both one both hilarious, but also once again setting in motion this idea of like, oh, really? We're gonna have so this this we're, we're gonna have this this beautiful moment, okay? You know that I have put all this time into. Uh, molding this this girl into what she needs to be, and we're gonna have the this bl- bland leading man come in and take her away. It, he's reacting against that, and the movie the movie does a really good job. I think Patrick Wilson plays it boring. Patrick Wilson is not a boring actor. He's not. No, he's he's, not. Very, he's a very expressive, you know, person and someone who you know really like, 
you could almost actually accuse him of overacting in some things, you know, like in this one, he's very reserved in what he does. And like, he's playing it very, you know, very basic and boring and, and kind of, I think like, like he's, it kind of makes sense, you know? Um, the other, the other, the really, really quick though, like this isn't really anything that like, um, it kind of has to do with what we're talking about, but not really. It's a little tangible thing. But one of the things that that the movie does and the play sometimes does, depending on who's who's directing it. Um, so Weber really writes this as as a push and pull between two selfish men, um, because he Raul, obviously the phantom selfishness is very, I mean, self-explanatory. But like there's a lot of like Raul using a lot of the same tactics that the Phantom does to get Christine. Uh, you know, Raul, of course, like the the most the one that's like the most over the top is Raul being like, Hey, we've got to kill this guy. Hey, Christine, will you go out and sing the song that he wrote explicitly for you and see if it'll show up, you know, randomly? <laughs> um but like one of the things that the play does that's really or that the play does sometimes and that the movie does, I think is really smart, is one of the first things that happens is that the phantom locks Christine in her room. And then later on, after everything's gone down, one of the first thing, one of the things we see is Patrick Wilson is guarding the door that Christine's in. He falls asleep because he's, you know, he's not as, as uh, virile and manly as the phantom, of course, but mm-hmm. like, but he does, he, he's doing the exact same concept of what the phantom does. And so there is this like sense of like ownership that is happening uh, for for this for this uh, girl, um, so you know it 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 you're 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 one hundred percent right in the idea of like in the idea of like how these characters aren't likable um, because I don't think they're supposed to be um, because I really think when Andrew Lloyd Webber's writing this I don't know if you've seen Andrew Lloyd Webber nothing against the man but he looks like someone who would spend a lot of time writing plays. And when he's writing, when he's writing this, I think he really views himself. I don't mean that to be. I, I really, that, that came out way meaner than that. That came out. Let me look, just just for the record. I'm a very I'm a I'm, I'm a very large and like unattractive man myself. So like I don't I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to that came, that was a lot meaner than it than I meant it to come out. Okay, because I really like oh, really cats and I love cats. But I don't want to say bad things about Andrew Weber, but. You know, I think he does view himself in a lot of ways as the as the phantom here. And and I think that's how he wrote it. You know, he wrote it as like this guy who's like, you know, the real genius is someone who has to uh, has to put himself away for a long time and come up with his stuff so that, you know, actors who don't have half the talent that I do come along and steal the girl. I think he's writing it that way. And so, yeah, you're, I mean, you're 100 percent correct. You know, your your analysis of like, I don't care if any of these people die or not is 100% correct. Absolutely. So, yeah. That was probably way bigger of an answer than you wanted, but that's the one. No, no, it was fine. I'm just still recovering from the... From the very unique shade you threw at Android Webber. Yeah, it was unintended. I I, I apologize, Android. Uh, I I, I love you, Andrew. Like, you've... You know, you're problematic as all get out, but, man, you've, you've written some fantastic stuff, so I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, man, that was awesome. 
Everybody, go ahead. Everybody listening to this right now, go ahead and pause this episode and go look up a picture of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. Um, and tell and tell us in the Discord if you agree with Josh or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah. No. Um. No. Yeah. So. Um. This is actually great because. You know, I actually said at the beginning of the episode, I said that I'm I'm trying to examine this. Um. As kind of a fun thought experiment through the lens of it being like um, a slasher flick, so it's actually great to have like um, a bit more of like the background kind of um, information about the creation of the play as kind of um, um, as kind of a counterbalance for that as well. So no, no, anything you want to uh, throw out in the in the discussion is great, um, but um, but yeah, and so um, taking kind of a transition here from talking about the cast to talking about some more elements uh, typically seen as slasher horror is one element of slasher stories that is probably not um, as well talked about as other parts but is very prevalent especially in like the slasher films of old is this idea of an early red herring as far as like who the killer is going to be so you think about um, Friday the 13th, you think about, um, especially with like Texas Chainsaw, um, you have these early on interactions with just kind of odd characters who are unsettling in some way. And you have these interactions with them and it plants the seeds of just like, oh, I wonder if they are going to be the bad guy. And then um, eventually you find out some more information about them and sometimes they aren't involved with it and sometimes they are and um under varying degrees they prove to be um i'm a bad guy or not or somewhere along the spectrum so we actually have this in phantom of the opera because um old old first mate gibbs from the pirates of the caribbean films um is in is in this which i never realized earlier when i was younger um he's in this he plays this stagehand who's like drunk all the time and the first time we interact with this character is just after the phantom has dropped one of the curtains on carlotta while she's performing and everybody like turns to look up at where that curtain dropped from and you see and you see gibbs i'm gonna i'm gonna call him gibbs uh, you see gibbs up there and he's just like it wasn't me i swear but if it wasn't me it must have been a ghost <laughs> and you're just like okay well that guy is not is not cool like immediately <laughs> it's honestly a more effective red herring than like anything else you've seen in actual slasher films <laughs> because he says that and you're immediately just like okay even if that guy is not the phantom of the opera he d- definitely like has people in his basement he is not he is not a good guy we aren't gonna find out that he's like secretly the hero of the story so um i thought that that was great because that scene honestly made me crack up as i was watching it um because it's uh, it's so unhinged and then as on the movie goes on we see that he is actually the first uh, victim to die at the hand of the phantom um in this film which um is often 
one of um, the common outcomes of red herring characters um, in slasher films as well. But um, I don't know. Did you enjoy that scene as much as I did, Josh? Because that scene cracked me up. I think it was the scene later where he was using it to hit on all the ballet, uh, all all the chorus dancers and ballerinas later on where he's like talking about his magic noose and like all this stuff. Like he, I mean, Gibbs is really, he, he's going for it. You know, he's, he's yeah. doing everything he can, uh, to, uh, uh, to come off as creepy as possible. Um, you know, it's like, he's using all the, he's using his stories to scare, uh, mm-hmm. scare all these women and everything. Um, but yeah, you're right. He's not only he's a red herring, but like, if I can add to this, he's also, he's another, another great slasher trope is first guy that dies, the guy that doesn't respect the killer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. he, he straight up does not respect the killer. We know that Madame Geary comes in, you know, and is like, Hey, um, you know, it's very stupid of you to be doing this stuff, uh, to use, you know, to, you know, to how you put it, um, you know, those basically some basically said like those who actually know better, you know, could be, you know, tame their tongue, so to speak. And, uh, you know, he does not, and he does know better. Uh, you know, he's, he's, you get the kind of sense he's been around as long as, uh, Madame Geary has, by the way, I have no clue who the, the name of this character. I don't, I don't think the character's actually ever named. Um, I think during that scene, when she first approaches him, she says his name. Yeah, um, but, but like it, it's not something that I really. It's care. not important. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not. Like, no. Yeah, he's, he is literally victim number one, yeah. and yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of what you take from him. But but no, yeah, I mean that's yeah, no, it, it, it he's he's ridiculous. But like once again, it goes back to this idea of like, so you don't respect the author that is the Phantom. Okay, you're going to be the first one to die. That's kind of it's kind of where we're going at here. And, uh, yeah, no, I, but yeah, I enjoyed his, I enjoyed his, uh, the way he played it. I mean, he does play it as very creepy and, and stupid. So yeah, it, it was fun. He does. It's very effective. It's great. Um, but I mean, I just really enjoyed that scene. I wanted to bring that up because man, I was just like, wow, man, like I've seen this before, so I know you're not the phantom, but if I had it, like you would be <laughs> right now, you would be suspect number one. Because you got way too much of a kick out of this person who almost got got straight up killed by this haunting curtain. Um, but um, yeah, we get into on these characters, we get into the story a bit. And um, Josh, I, I had brought up to you earlier. Um, for some reason, when I was thinking back to this film, I recalled the Phantom killing way more people than he actually does. Um, we aren't for sure how many people died when he crashed the chandelier into the audience. I will, I will allow that. Um, so we don't really have a body count there, but, um, yeah, we really only see the phantom kill personally. Uh, we only see him kill two people throughout the film. Uh, he almost kills Raul, um, but ultimately he does not. So um, it's kind of interesting. If we're holding him up to standards in slasher films, as what uh, we're kind of doing with this episode, um, you know, the body count he has right now is not great. I mean, you know, it's not the best. But, um, I mean, you know, as his first outing, I guess it's all right. Um, but um, getting into it, though, I do want to 
talk about the slasher um, air quotes there himself with on um, the actual the phantom of the opera um so the phantom we get actually a pretty healthy amount of information about his character in this film we get the information that you know he he's writing his own plays and he's composing stuff he's kind of carved out this existence within the, the theater um where you know he has secret passageways and trap doors and all kinds of things um and we learned that um again kind of following up with um slasher-esque themes he has become very much obsessed with um the final girl and christine to the point that he has what i guess is like a wax figure of her in a wedding dress just like chilling in his underground no, go, go and say it. Go and say it. Just like Helga and Hey Arnold. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally exactly. Just like Helga and Hey Arnold. It's true. Um, to, to the point where, like, Homie is so down bad, he just, like, shows it to her <laughs> that first night, and she faints as, as any reasonable person would because that's wild. Um, but, like, I guess kudos to shooting your shot. But I will say that Phantom of the Opera, as we've already touched upon a bit, Josh, um, it takes it a step further than a majority of slasher films do, in that this fascination and this obsession with um, the final girl feels much more intimate and therefore feels way more insidious and evil as well. Because, um, you know, with the majority of slasher franchises, we get this killer's obsession with uh, the final girl because she was the one who fought him off. She was the one who survived. She was the one who kind of rose to power. We've had that discussion very recently with of our discussion of the Behind the Mask film a couple of weeks ago. So we have this understanding. We have this archetype established in slasher films and for some reason, despite the Phantom not doing as much physically aggressive and fatalistic things as most slashers do, he feels so much worse because this is a man, presumably, who has watched Christine grow up from a child when she was first kind of adopted by a madame of the theater and kind of brought into show business and just kind of grew up in the theater itself. Um, Christine talks about how she's had dreams or visions or possibly just probably real experiences that she has kind of oppressed of interacting with the Phantom and constantly hearing his voice, following his directions. Um, the Madame herself at the beginning of the film says that like he's basically her vocal coach. Um, so the madame knows exactly what's happening, which paints the madame in a, in a kind of interesting light, in my opinion. But we also see, see this relationship between the quote-unquote slasher and the quote-unquote final girl. And it feels worse than most slasher films do. Um, so in a way, 
if we're looking at it through the perspective of a horror film trying to establish its villain and its final girl, um, really well done. It's captured our attention. It has caused all of us to go eel gross. But um, I think there's kind of an obligation to own up to it being as gross as it is. And as you've already said, Josh, we don't really receive that kind of re- that kind of resolution from this story. So, Josh, am I wrong in saying that, like, this obsessive relationship that we've seen time and time again in slasher franchises over several films often, this kind of obsessive relationship, is it actually worse here than it is in compared to, like, um, Laurie Strode and Michael in the Halloween films? What's your kind of opinion on this? Well, I think I think the... I think what makes it worse is the idea that... Um, is the idea that Christine's written as being into it, if that makes sense. So, like, so, you know, of course, you know, this is not not to do victim blaming here, but that's just how she's kind of written as uh, as a as a teenage girl who's fallen under sway of this, Mm -hmm. you know, mysterious man. Um, But the manipulation tactics of the Phantom are really like intense because, like you said, it's, you know, it's I care about what you said, but it's kind of like implied or inferred that like. You know, like he's watched her. It's, it's not implied. It's it's there. Like you know, like she says. You know, at one point, like you know, every time I light this candle for my father, the angel of music comes and talks to me. And like you know, she says that like when her father died, that the angel of music he'd send the angel of music to watch over her. And so like he has this. He keeps having this callback to that moment, and like he keeps like referring to himself as the angel of music. So we're so we're literally in a situation where uh, this guy is using the father's dying, uh, like dying way of comforting his child against her. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. I mean, like it's, it's like it's yeah. straight up, it's straight up evil, you know. And um, and then you know, there's I mean, if, if we're gonna bring it into the modern era, my man, um, he literally makes a statement like, you know. Um, Basically, because of my face, I have not enjoyed the pleasures of the flesh, which is a nice way of saying, you know, we would call that in 2023 an incel, you know, and that's what (laughs) it is, you know, and like, and of course, like, that's nothing new for slashers. A lot of slashers, you know, play on that role. Sure. Um, But like, but that is literally what he, he is. And that's, that's part of his, his problem. Um, you know, and like it, it, what's great about it and like even in the play, what's fantastic about it, it's almost like it's almost like Andrew Lloyd Webber like realizes like what he's done. And so he's like, well, really quick, I've got to throw together this like really weird backstory of these gypsies racism uh, who have taken <laughs> over, who have who have kidnapped this boy and like, you know, got this basically large birthmark on his face. Uh, they call him the the devil and beat him and like they pay all these people to come and like laugh at him and stuff and he's just like it's like what like what a weird like strange thrown together backstory for this guy you know um, but like it does it does add to like you know Madam you're right Madam Gurry has a really interesting relationship with him 
but also because she's the one that like helps him get away. Uh, there's this almost sense of like friendship camaraderie kind of thing going on there with, with her. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I won't say it's worse, you know, but like, it's, 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 it's definitely up there because it's, it's, it's a really like, you know, creepy concept. And when particularly looking at it in, in the lens that we have today, you know, of course in 1980. Six and eighty-seven. When this is being written, you know, we're still not done. I mean, like, you know, freaking Kip Wingers, you know, coming out the song seventeen and talking about how he's gonna, you know, you know, I don't care if he's seventeen or not. We're still gonna, you know, we're gonna have a relationship kind of thing. So like, that's still happening. But like in twenty twenty-three, looking back on it, like when we know things about stuff like you know, uh, the very real problem of men grooming young women. Uh, particularly men in positions of power, grooming young women, uh, the idea of like power dynamics and sexual harassment and stuff like that. Looking at it now, yeah, it looks pretty horrible. You know, it's really hard to be like, you know, what a really misunderstood, you know, love story this is. It's very hard to say that um, because he is straight up manipulative and he is straight up, um, straight up grooming, uh, grooming Christine. And, you know, and, uh, and you're right, the movie doesn't really take him to task for it. In fact, if anything, the movie, when he lets Christine go, the movie kind of exonerates him mm-hmm. and uh, and lets him, you know, kind of like, you know, um, gives him kind of a, a closure, you know, of like, you know, that like he's going to he's going to continue to suffer, you know, um, he's going to suffer in the in the deeps of hell due to his birthmark. And not be able to, you know, live among people and like the movies kind of sees that as and well, I mean, in the play, they both kind of see this as like noble and it's, you know, it's not. <laughs> it just, it just isn't. You know, like it's just not it just isn't. Just so, not a, it's, it's not a noble thing, you know. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, no, it's yeah, it's really man, it's really interesting because it's one of the one of the controversies real quick out real quick yeah yeah the other thing, to, to piggyback on your idea of the slasher too the other thing that the play and the movie don't do is like when you're dealing with michael myers you're dealing with any like the scream guys you know or freddy krueger like you get this idea like these killers are disturbed you know in a, in a way like there's some mm-hmm. type of like and like he's got a bad backstory but you really don't get the idea you correct me if i'm wrong you don't get the idea like he's like disturbed you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you get the idea like he's very well aware of the things he does right. and very well aware of of the harm it could cause but he doesn't care because you know he's going to get what he wants no matter what um so you're at yeah, that kind of makes it uh kind of makes it worse too sorry i, I just want to interject yeah. no no it's fine i mean it's what you said earlier um, when we were texting about the film, and like you said in jest, you were just like, you know, uh, just like, no, no, he's he's misunderstood. Like he's just, you know, he's he's just a sad boy who, who nobody understands, and yeah, and he knows what he wants, um, and that um, it really is the implication that you kind of get from the story um um as i was going to say you know one of the frequent controversial talking points that come up over the over the decades and decades that slasher films have existed have been that you know slasher films glorify violence because they encourage viewers to side with and 
Amorais and Slashers themselves. And um, there's a few reasons why I don't agree with that idea. Um, but with that idea in mind, with that argument in mind, I don't think I've ever seen a slasher film just in your face glorify the killer as much as the phantom is glorified in phantom of the opera um like i don't think i've ever seen it to the same extent because as you said you get this um just suddenly you get this wild backstory about how like oh well it's actually like it's actually fine because he was like kidnapped and abused by this random band of romani who randomly just like have a human circus, which, like, as far as I know, historically is not something that the Romani ever did. And never, <laughs> not, not once. Like, I mean, we're, this is this is this is straight up racism for Manor. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Let's just call it what it is. It is straight up <laughs> racism, just like for no reason. Yeah, yeah. That is a, a crazy take. But, but, um, so like you have this backstory, and it's just it's just like, oh no, he was actually abused because of like his. Deformity, and then he escaped that, and he hasn't been like exposed to the real world. He hasn't seen the beauty of it. He's been sheltered and in the dark for so long, and things like that. And like I'm, I'm watching it unfold, and I'm just like, that's a really cool origin story, man. Like you're still grooming a child. Like, <laughs> like that doesn't, it doesn't erase what you're doing. No. So, so yeah, it's this really weird effort to justify the actions of the guy who is killing people in the story that you just don't see in slasher films. Um, The closest parallel I can even draw to it is like um, down the road and later iterations of the Texas Chainsaw films, you like, there's like a vague effort to kind of humanize Etherface because like he's, He's like a disabled dude who was like abused and raised to be this way by his insane family. But like even that, that's that's given as like just kind of a hand hand waving like um I'm like, oh yeah, this is kind of why he is the way he is. Like anyway, let's get back to gore. And that's all that really is. But in this, the central idea is that there's something redeemable about the phantom and the things he's done and that's just not a sentiment you really see in slasher films so um yeah it was just wild to me how much more that stood out to me now now having watched it as an adult than it did when i was um, a kid and i watched it with my sister all the time um so yeah it's really interesting um it, it definitely gives a new iteration of what has become one of my favorite questions to ask about um, themes and storytelling and literature and film, which is um, which is the uh, wonderful question. I don't know if I've told you about it or not, Josh, but the question of of you know, is the antagonist poorly gray, or is he evil and hot? Like that's <laughs> that's kind of the self-analyzing kind of question to ask um, as you're um, engaging with the story, and so um, oddly enough, we don't really have like 
either of those things like here because like he's disfigured. So in like the so like in the most traditional sense, he isn't hot, but at the same time, it's Gerard Butler. So I don't really know. I don't have Like, is he is he disfigured? I mean, like that's the thing. Up right. It it strikes the same chord when we finally see the reveal and finally see his whole face. Um, the dude just kind of looks like he had a really bad sunburn on like 65% of his face. Yeah. That's kind of what it looks like. It struck chords with me. I'm glad you brought it up. It did strike chords with me the same way that they did, um, the, the facial scars for, and Barnes in the yeah. Punisher show, yeah. where it's just kind of like, ah, oh, here's Jigsaw, he's horribly disfigured and, yeah. and repulsive to set your eyes upon, and it just looks like a a slightly scarred up version of Ben Barnes. <laughs> like, like it's not, it's not what it should be at all. So no, no, I agree. It's kind of the same thing. It's just kind of like, well, is he really, is he really hideous? It's so like, it's still so Gerard the, Butler. <laughs> so, so what? So what's interesting? You know, the, the, this this one again goes back to the the play versus. Now this is the play versus the old, you know, tw- silent movie where it's uh, it's not Bella Gossi, Who is it? It's uh, is it Lon Caney? Um, like piano wire on his face to make his act like he's not wearing a mask. He like stretched his face so it would be you know that reveal would be horrible. Um, you know it's a uh, it goes back to that. You know that reveal is supposed to be the penultimate reveal if the movie's a horror movie. If the movie's a horror movie, that's the penultimate moment. You know. Uh, to the point, like, you know, that there, there were tales of, like, people actually fainting in a theater when they saw it, you know. And it's still, it's actually pretty effective even today, how it looks. Particularly when you realize, like, you didn't use any makeup or anything. Um, for this movie, though, like, they play it really interesting because she takes off the mask, you know, after their love song together. Right. And then just stares longingly at him. Like, it's not like a, there's no repulsion. There's no, like, um, there's nothing about it that's, uh, that makes you think, like, he finds this, like, to be a deal breaker, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, sure. And, and that's, I think that's intentional, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, part of, part of the movie, I think, really is, you know, kind of making this play. I mean, yeah, sure, you got Gerard Butler, and, you know, you, you, you know, he's, he's, He's the guy. He's he's framed in such a way like this. This is a, you know, th- this is a, this this is really dealing with like, you know, uh, uh, female gaze fantasy kind of stuff, you know, uh, or they're trying to at least. Sure. Um, but like, you know, there's there's part of the the play and the movie are kind of saying like, hey, this really wasn't that bad. We're just horrible, you know. <laughs> like I mean, like you know, like like the people are just people are just horrible. Uh, for how they've how how he's been treated, and that's the and this is the result of that, um, which goes back into the the kind of how how he's he's a redemptive character in this movie, um, and you know like everything he's done is kind of justified um, because of how the world has treated him, so to speak. Uh, you know, and I, I'm not saying I agree with that, but it is interesting that that's how they play it. 
um, because they really do play it as like, you know, you know, like they, they, it's, it's funny because like, you know, like it's this, it's this intense moment, you know, the, the orchestra's hitting the high notes, you know, and then he just takes it off. It's just like, all right, you know, like he's a little more red on that side of his face, I guess, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, still Gerard Butler, you still know, Gerard Butler. still a very, very good looking man, very good looking. 80% of his face is still very good looking, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's um, I mean that's wild, man. I mean during that first scene, um, after their love song where she first kind of removes his mask, um, if anything, the adverse reaction comes from him. It comes from him trying to like hide his disfigured face and just kind of lashing out at her. And so, um, again, if we're going to talk about kind of parallels to slasher films and and thoughts and theories about the genre. Um, you know, that kind of masculine insecurity there, you know, that kind of obsession with one's own flaws and re-channeling that into hatred of of the female sex. Like, that is a psychoanalyzed theme that pops up in slasher films. It pops up all the time. So, so you know, this is um, just kind of a recurring um, idea um again i'll say it's not as hand waved in slasher films that is as it is in this uh, <laughs> so again you have that weird kind of tension where you kind of question you know what's actually the healthier depiction of this kind of relationship you know is it is it in halloween or is it in phantom of the opera um but um yeah so yeah as we go on as we as we head towards the close of this episode. Um, so we have reached the point of the film. Um, a couple people have died. Um, the Phantom has kind of exerted his will upon our cast of characters. Um, we're kind of reaching a climax or a conflict. And if we're going by the typical stereotypical script of what would happen in a slasher film, if we're examining it from that lens. This is where we start to see the female protagonist kind of take it upon herself to rise to the occasion, to oppose this evil that's hunting her and the people she cares about. And there's a clash between them. And then the rest of the film kind of plays out depending on the slasher that you're watching. Um, we don't really get to see Christine achieve final girl status here. Uh, we don't really get to see that process happen. We don't get to see that um, that transformation that Leslie Vernon talks about it behind the mask. Um, so we don't really get to see that play out. What we do get to see is this excruciatingly slow transformation with Raul where earlier in the film he has he has seen a man killed by hanging during the events of a play <laughs> and he has seen like he's received like weird oats and seen other people receive weird oats and he's heard disembodied voices talk about how they want the theater to be run and we get a scene where he chases out Amy Rossum's character 
And Raul is just kind of like, there's no such thing as the Phantom. Which, as a typically skeptical person myself, really made me go, really, man? Like, you don't believe in it at all? Like, (laughs) sure, you don't have to jump to say, oh, well, there's a ghost who's haunting us. But to watch a man get hanged from the rafters of a play, specifically after a anonymous note from the Phantom says, hey, if you do this the wrong way, then bad things are going to happen. To seeing that happen with your own eyes, you're not kind of persuaded that the Phantom could exist. <laughs> it, was a re- it was a really frustrating scene for me uh, when I was watching this play out, because God, I love Patrick Wilson, but man, he he nailed the cluelessness of that scene. Like, <laughs> he nailed it. It was incredible. Uh, but eventually we do see his development to just be like, well, I guess there is a phantom. I guess I should do something about this. And so he has this really cool sword fight in the cemetery that will later go on to inspire a boss fight in the video game Bloodborne because it's the most horrifically gothic cemetery I've ever seen. And... Um, they have a fight. I'm for record that I hate that sword fight, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, that? It, make, it makes no sense for anyone's character in that, in that, I mean, it's not in the play, and it makes no sense for anyone's character what happens in during that scene. Uh, because Raul is not, should not be a swordsman. Let's start there. <laughs> and then he should definitely not lose to the Phantom, you know, who has spent, who has done nothing but spent his entire life learning how to do stuff in his, you know, and who we're told is like, has a savant kind of aspect of his brain where like, he can just learn stuff, you know? And so Raul's, you know, Viscount, you know, you know, you know, Pansy rear end shows up and like beats him. It just doesn't make any sense. Like it's a, it's a really dumb scene that is only that, that makes no sense in the context of the film. I just wanted to say that. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. It's, it's really wild. It feels very odd because you are led to believe. I was surprised when I was doing research on this that this takes place in 1871 because right. it doesn't feel like it takes place in 1871. Like it really doesn't, um, especially with that scene because, um, as you said, Raul rides up bareback riding a white horse. It's incredible. It's incredible how not subtle the scene is. Um, rides up on a on a white horse, completely, completely bareback, which is not easy to do. And he jumps off and he just like draws a saber. And you're just like, it's 1871. (laughs) Like guns have been used casually for like two centuries now. Yeah. Yeah, He comes up, draws a saber, you know, like six years after the cult revolver has been invented, you know? So, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're, you're not wrong, but like for me, like, you know, yeah, it's very anachronistic, but at the same time, it's just, it's just, it's an annoying, it's like an annoying scene because it's also supposed to be the scene where Christine like figures out, like you're talking about the idea of like, you know, like Christine doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, uh, like final girl kind of status, which is is designed, but sure. like this, that's supposed to be a scene where she's like, I don't know if you really are what you say you are, you know, are you bad for me kind of thing, and they just sweep right through that so they can have a sword fight. It's just like it's like the most Hollywood thing, you know. 
It just it just annoys me so much. And it's yeah. Hollywood. It's true, yeah. Yeah. And like when we get back to Christine, it's like it's this thing where I understand the explanation. And the explanation is that, you know, this is Christine is a victim of the Phantom. In a lot of ways, she is the first victim of the Phantom and that she's been groomed from a young age um, at a very vulnerable time in her life. She's been manipulated very skillfully this whole time. And so you have that explanation, and, and that explanation is very easy to understand. But you want something more to come out of that. You want to see that transformation. You want to see her kind of rise above the manipulation, rise above the years of abuse, and you don't. So you're so you're left with kind of a very hollow interpretation of who Christine's character is supposed to be. And I'm not saying that's not intentional. I think it is intentional. I'm just saying it's bad. I'm just saying that that's not a character that you really find yourself investing in as the film goes on. And so... Uh, that's one area where the parallel to slasher films kind of drops um, with very few exceptions. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago uh, with Behind the Mask, where um, the final girl there is not great because she plays directly into the slasher's hands. She does exactly what he told her to do. He, she follows his guidelines completely, even up to when she wins the encounter. It's still the fact that she wins the way he designed her to. So that agency is kind of stripped from her. And so we have this similar situation where agency is stripped um, away from Christine, and we don't really see anything change with that. And I know just for me, it's possible that I've just been spoiled over the years with like this gradual rise in female characters actually being written well. Um, so I've probably been kind of spoiled by that, but going back to this film, um, you know, I felt kind of hollow whenever it came to any last takeaways from from Christine as a character. I don't know if you have anything else you want to kind of comment on it with. I mean, yeah, I've got a. I don't want to disagree with you because you're not wrong, okay? You're not. But this is where Christine's character is where the the idea of this as a slasher film falls apart. Sure. Because what, what you want, okay, and what, if you view this as a slasher film, what you want is a is her to show up and, you know, kill, uh, you know, kill the phantom or like, you know, save, um, you know, save, uh, a role by herself, you know, and like run off and like, you know, take command of the situation. But the problem is, is that this is not what, this is not what the film is about because when you're dealing with Andrew Lloyd Webber, he has one thought process really through all of his early films. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking going from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat all the way through Cats, all the way through Evita, 
all the way through uh, even School of Rock, which he worked on. You know, like mm-hmm. all all those things have one thought concept, and it's that kindness is what saves the world. And so the point in here, like, and once again, I'm not like I I can I can I can feel you rolling your eyes as I'm saying this, and that's perfectly fine. But like what's happened here in the way the the thing that it's that it's the penultimate moment that you're going to is when Christine saves the phantom and saves Raul through her act of kindness of seeing him, you know, as someone who deserves to be loved. Now, that is not satisfying. I understand it's not satisfying, but that's the point of the film. And so like, you know, it that that's where you that's where you go. I mean, like it's you know, Avita is, you know, Avita's married to a horrible dictator and you know, and tries to stave off uh the horrors that he does by um you know, by being kind to the people that he rolls over, okay, essentially. That is not satisfying at all. It's not, you know, but that's what the film that's what the plays about, you know, Joseph the Maiden Tech Color Dream Cult. You know, the whole reason Joseph is successful because he's kind to everyone he's around. He gets screwed over, over and over and over again until the end. Even in Cats, Grizabella, the glamour cat, the only reason she can go uh, go to cat heaven and get reincarnated, I love the fact I get to talk about this, is, like, <laughs> is the fact the only reason that happens is because the rest of the cats understand that they need to be kind to her and let her back into the fold. Like, so this is a, this is a constant theme here. And I realize it's not satisfying because in 2023, you know, we're pretty jaded about like, well, you know, yeah, kindness really isn't enough. You know, like we, you know, our generation's been kind for a long time and it hasn't done us a whole lot. You know, we're kind of, we're going to inherit a world that is really screwed up. But like, that's the point of the film. The point of the film is, you know, he, she is kind to him at the end and that's how she is saved. And that's how he's redeemed. And that's how Raul, you know, is saved. That's the point of the film. And so she does take control of the situation, but it's not taking control of the situation in a way that's indicative of slasher films. It's closer to like sure. Belle and Beauty and the Beast, sure. you know. Yeah. Um, so like it's it's a it's a it's a different concept. Al, I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying like, you know, that's that's what it's supposed to be. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I get frustrated too, you know, cause I mean, really like, because even, even as you say, even as you say that, like the, the end of this should be the phantom dies. And what's hilarious is at the end of this movie, like you get the idea of the phantom's alive and Raul's alive and Christine's the one that's dead, which is like just hilarious. Uh, <laughs> you know, but like it, the phantom should die in this movie. Like he really should. Uh, that makes the most sense, but, um, but you know, it, it's about kindness. You know, I mean, that's uh, that's what his that's what his plays are about. You know, for for good or for bad, and uh, that that's what's happening here. So so yeah, I, I just I, I got to defend it a little bit, Al. I got I got to no. defend it a little bit. <laughs> no no no, and I, and I get where you're coming from as well, and I think you do have the accurate take on it. Um, I think there is a feminist reading of this film that highlights that final confrontation scene with uh, Christine in the Phantom and Rule, where um, where instead of adopting the more typical slasher 
Bond-esque idea of resolving the issue, you know, there's an there's an argument to be made that um, she wins, she overcomes this confrontation through a much more gentle, kind, um, traditionally more feminine kind of approach to resolving it. Um, and uh, just kind of eschews the more traditionally masculine um, kind of destructive way of resolving it. So, um, so there definitely is a reading there that's uh, that's actually very feminist, is is very generous and positive towards those characteristics of Christine. Um, for me, obviously, he's speaking as a man who's is trying to learn and catch up with a lot of that stuff. Um, for me, that interpretation of it is kind of undermined by just how that relationship is portrayed through the other 95% of the film. But <laughs> but um, I could be wrong. I don't know. Uh, let me know out there if I am, but um, because I want to know. But, um, oh yeah, it's interesting. As you said, very interesting resolution to it. Very interesting take on that kind of interaction. Um, does not fit very well into what we come to expect of slasher films, which of course, this isn't one, but um, um, it, it needed to be addressed where those um, parallels are trying to be made. Um, but... Yeah, um, as we come to a close, though, Josh, um, I do have to say, and there's a lot of stuff in this film that we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about the soundtrack at all, but I mean, like, it's in above the opera, man. I don't know what you want me to say. Like, it's an incredible soundtrack. Like, it's Phantom of the Opera. Like, <laughs> it's ageless, you know? So we don't really have a whole lot to add there. Um, but... Um, I mean, one of the things I do want to highlight, which I feel like goes completely unaddressed over the years, when it comes to discussions of Phantom of the Opera. Josh, do you have any idea where I'm going with this? I do not. Okay. So, so join me on a journey, y'all, if you will, as I attempt in one last gasp to draw one final parallel between fandom of the opera and the slasher films that we have come to love or detest over the years, depending on who you are. And I take you on this journey with just a simple question that Josh, since you're the only person I'm talking to directly right now, I'll ask you, um, Josh, when we get to these icons of horror, the Jason's and the Freddy's and the Huckies and the ghost faces and all of the iconic slashers of horror, uh, the hatchets, if you will. Um, they are characters who have stood the test of time. And what, in your opinion, Josh, is the most literal kind of reason, the most nuts and bolts reason why these characters have lasted as long as they, as they have. What would you say? Um, 
I mean, with slashers, you know, well, I mean, I, I do think there's a certain, um, charisma, uh, to the slasher that's, that, uh, is somewhat seductive. Um, you know, there's a, you know, cause I, I, you know, you, you said a while ago, like that, you know, one of the complaints about horror movies is that they, um, they, they, they allow or slasher movies in particular is that they allow us to sympathize with the slasher, so to speak. Um, I think there's, I think there's certain slashers you're not supposed to sympathize with. I don't think any of the scream slashers, for example, like by the end of it, like you want them dead because they're so freaking annoying. Um, but like, but you know, by the time you get to like Nightmare on Elm Street, like five or whatever, I mean, Freddy Krueger's the un, you know, unequivocal star of that movie. Um, you know, you, I don't know anyone that can tell us that can tell you a, uh, like off the top of your head, maybe you, cause you're a horror, you know, fanatic, but you know, that can tell us like any of the main characters of four or five, you know, or, or new sure. nightmare or whatever. And it's because like it, at that point it become, the movie does become, uh, the movies become about, you know, the difference way Freddy Krueger can terrorize people. And so, like, I think the reason that they do stick around, that a lot of these slashers do stick around, does have to do a lot of their charisma. Now, when you're dealing with, <laughs> you know, I I don't want to ha- really, like, with, with, with Family Opera, I don't want to really have this conversation, I'll be honest with you, because I do think part of the reason, I mean, women love Phantom of the Opera. You know, like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of women that love Phantom of the Opera. And there is, like, this, like, weird, like fantasy thing that happens there that i am not qualified to talk about in any way shape form or fashion so but it's there and it is something that that the play has really and this movie plays into really heavily um you know one of the things i read uh one of the trivias that i read about uh about family opera um the second most interesting one i read was that the original prosthesis for Gerard Butler was supposed to take up way more of his face. And Joe Schumacher was like, absolutely not. <laughs> He's like, no, you know, like, no, you know, because like he, like they realize what they're playing into, you know, um, there's a certain, you know, uh, it, it's the, you know, and it, it, it's hard for a lot of, of people to understand, particularly I would say men to understand because one of the things Lindsay Ellis talks about uh, talked about several times when she was still having her YouTube's uh, her YouTube videos coming up was that you know the the world in in America is designed to really like dislike things that women like and so you know and and so you know there's there's nothing wrong with having this fantasy about the Phantom of the Opera but like at the same time, there's something to be said about, you know, viewing both the Phantom, the Freddy Kruegers, the Michael Myers in the lens that they're kind of supposed to be viewed, which is straight up villains, you know, and straight up villains that attack uh, certain aspects of of our society. Uh, that's what they represent. Um, you know, both Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween uh, really represent this idea of like, you know, suburbia is not safe because there's secrets in suburbia. Um, and societally, you know, that, that's that's the reasoning behind, that's one of the reasons those movies are successful that way. And those characters are representative of that. And I think that's why they stick around. 
Um, and then there's some are just like, you know, just like ridiculous. I mean, like, like you, you keep bringing up Chucky. We haven't done a child's play movie yet. I don't know if I can do a serious analysis of a child's play movie because I think they're <laughs> ridiculous. But like the reason that one stuck around is just because of how ridiculous it is. I mean, you, you can't tell me any different, you know? And then the reason something like, you know, like I love the Predator movies. Um, the reason the Predator movies stick have stuck around so much is because of this idea of like, you know, uh, you know, man versus beast, you know, and the beast is really freaking cool, you know, mm-hmm. and like, and so yeah, that, that that's a hard thing to answer, you know, really unequivocally because I think mm-hmm. they all have different reasons for why they have stuck around. Um, but slashers in particular, I do think there's a sense of like, it's just that charisma of, you know, of the, you know, of the slasher and, and the ones that are, the ones that have stuck around, you know, um, to go back to behind the mask are the ones that like can kind of like stay in the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist. And, you know, because of, you know, how charismatic they are or their storyline behind them or whatever, um, you know, and 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 then with also like, you know, like this is the other the other issue like that I have with like family opera being a slasher, although it shares a lot of similarities to it is that most slashers also deal with, like, this sense of realism, so the scares seem a little more visceral, mm. you know? So, like, you know, I mean, that's the big thing about Scream, right, is, like, they're all bad at killing. I mean, they're just bad at killing people. Like, mm. they fall over a lot, and, you know, and, like, you know, they fall down the stairs, and it takes a while. And so, like, there's a more visceral kind of scare to it um, that happens that uh that i think keith is coming back so you know i don't know i don't know if i answered that i think i answered that about six different ways so you know that's okay. a decent answer for you no no it's okay it was a great I mean, answer what do you think what do you i mean what do you think why why, why do you, why do slashers stick around sure I mean, you're yeah expert here sure yes yeah. so it was a great answer it was an excellent answer i loved it um uh the p- p- point i was st- Harding to head towards um, is actually a much more tangible reason why um, his iconic slashers are kind of um, kind of stay in our heads over the years and over the decades. Um, it's simply one of these stereotypical things we've come to associate with a slasher film is a long string of equal films. Um, now, so you have this idea of like, you know, if you take just Halloween, I mean, Halloween has sequels that branch into alternate timelines and worlds and it's a mess. Um, but it's a franchise along with all these other franchises that have had sequels follow them. And oftentimes, more often than not, the sequels kind of go off the rails and get kind of insane and ridiculous and kind of lose parts of what had made the originals or or the first few entries um so iconic and so and so enjoyed um the parallel i'm trying to draw i'm trying to draw here josh uh, is that um there is a it all talked about equal to the phantom of the opera Um, in 2012, and here all of the dots are beginning to connect for Josh as far as like uh, the prep we did 
before the recording. In 2012, there was a limited release film called Love Never Dies, sequel to The Phantom of the Opera. Um, that is the full title. I'm reading it off of the thing. <laughs> it's Love Never Dies, the yeah. sequel to The Phantom of the Opera. Um, that takes place roughly 10 years after that final confrontation. Um, it follows it follows Christine and Raul and their son have traveled to Coney Island of all places <laughs> yeah. after having fled Paris. Coney um, Island, New York, baby. And uh, they're hanging out. Christine reconnects with the Phantom. She sings a whole bunch of songs. I don't know any of those songs. I'll be honest with you. I just don't. <laughs> um, I have no idea the songs that are in this film. But um, so it does have a sequel. It has a sequel that's kind of absurd. Um, that oh, kind of goes off the rails. Listen, you don't even know the half of it, man. <laughs> but like, real quick, I want to, I, I want to, I want to help you out because sure. it's not little talked about. Because that is the greatest failure of Andrew Lloyd Webber's career, and I have no clue why he did. It's considered one of the worst Broadway film uh, musicals of all time. Um, and like that, that. So what? What essentially that play does is undo everything that the first one does. And I, I kind of wonder, because the play came out in 2010, I think, and I kind of wonder if it's like, if it's almost Weber having uh, having learned, or, or like, like having learned that people were starting to really rethink Phantom of the Opera as like a love story, and or as, as not a love story, and more just like a story about a really creepy guy who creeps on a girl. Um because like it's essentially dude that that play the point of that play is it is it is that the phantom is ultimately redeemed you know and like it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense with how with how the phantom of the opera play ends you know it doesn't make any sense with any of that uh oh dude it's it's it, oh it's wild man we could we could go for another hour and a half you know we, we're we're at about an hour and a half right now we could go for another hour and a half uh oh. talking about how wild this movie is uh, yeah, that you're right. That wouldn't make it very slasher like um, yeah. because it is it is absurd. Yes, very slasher esque. So there you go, everybody. Final proof, final evidence submitted that Phantom of the Opera is actually a slasher film. Everybody is welcome. Everybody have a good night, and that <laughs> that is our show for tonight. <laughs> um, but um, no, I just really enjoyed that. I'll be honest, man. Uh, just another example of how you are a bit more plugged into um, the culture of that scene that I am. I had never heard of this play slash film. Um, I never heard of it. I had never heard of it until literally today when I was doing some last research about Phantom of the Opera for the show. So um so yeah, it was a blast for me. I'm I'm kinda tempted to hunt down a Blu-ray of that. And watch it, man. I'm curious. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, it, it's it's uh, it, it's a whole other thing. I've never seen it. I've never seen the play. I just know the synopsis. The music's bad. I mean, objectively bad. I don't. I don't know what's going on. Uh, what what was going on there? Because after he does, he does the he does the School of Rock uh, uh, for Broadway, and it's yeah. really it's really good. I mean, it was really well received, and like you know, and he makes. Perfect sense for it because Andrew Lee Webber at his core is a pop 
he's a pop writer is what he is. Um, that's what he brought to Broadway as he turned Broadway into a place where a bunch of pop songs or get sung, um, for better, for worse, but like, <laughs> Uh, school. He's so like he. It's not like he like all of a sudden became a hack. I don't know what happened there. It's just everybody. Everybody gets a bad one, you know. And that was his. Can I tell you my favorite piece of trivia that I learned about about uh, Phantom of the Opera? Absolutely. Yeah. I did not know. Okay. If you go to IMDb, all right, yeah. and I'm just taking this as truth. This might not be true. IMDb's trivia section which I read a lot, uh, but, you know, it, it has a, it has a Wikipedia quality to it, mm-hmm. but this one did not have the citation needed on it. So there's a citation for this somewhere. This was said and spoken into reality somewhere. What I'm about to tell you, they talk about the fact that Gerard Butler was pretty, he was cast pretty late in this. Mm-hmm. It took a while for them to, uh, to really get Gerard Butler, Patrick Wilson and Emmy Rossum all together um, and like, for example, like Kira Knightley uh, was the early uh, the the early front runner for this role, and then mm-hmm. Catherine Zeta Jones was a front runner for the role, which would have been a completely different dynamic, yes. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but like, the best thing I heard, and like, I am upset that this did not happen because I <laughs> promise you, I would watch this film a hundred times. When you go to IMDb's trivia, they say that. Matthew McConaughey, like they list all like Matthew McConaughey, uh, you know, Hugh Jackman, you know, we're all considered for this role of the Phantom. And sure. then right in the middle of it, they say Meatloaf was considered. <laughs> you know, let me tell you, let me tell you, dude, like <laughs> I, I would, I would buy. I would buy hundreds of copies of that and just hand it out to people for Christmas. Like every Christmas, people would be getting a copy of Phantom of the Opera with me. Because here's the best part about this, okay? All right? Is like, first I laughed, and then I talked myself into it. Because if you have Meatloaf, there is no, like, like this movie becomes completely different because there's no, like, you know, like psychosexual thing happening with the Phantom, okay? Right? It's Meatloaf. The other thing about Meatloaf is his vocal range is perfect for the songs. Oh, like yeah. he is a high tenor. So like, you know, like, the, so like one of the things that like Butler gets, there's a lot of people that complain about Butler's performance in this. I'm not one of them, but like, there's a lot of people that do because he makes this choice to do these, like what are called discordant notes, which are essentially, I know you, you know, what that is, but I'm just going to explain anyway, but like a discordant note is basically where you either go a little high or a little low for where the note is so if like the notes like a c you don't really go like to a c sharp but you kind of like get a little higher or a little lower and he makes this choice a lot and it annoys a lot of people because the first guy that did the phantom was a guy named Combe wilkinson who if most people probably don't know who that is but famous broadway uh actor and singer uh most famed for doing uh jean valjean on les mis for like you know, 20 years or whatever, uh, a guy who never misses a note. So when you go from like, that is your experience as the phantom. And then you go into this and Gerard Butler is literally like the depths of hell, you know, like it's really, it's really off putting to some people. And like, I was sitting there going, there's no way meatloaf would do that. Cause like, it's like, he's got a great voice. And I would have just like, 
that would have been amazing because everything about the movie changes if it's like 40, 45 to 50 year old meatloaf you know, playing the Gerard Butler role. And that would have been, like, and then it would have just been unintentional hilarious because then you've got to, like, have Emmy Rossum looking, like, lovingly into the eyes of me. <laughs> you know, like, like, it's just, like, everything about that was so beautiful to me. I was so upset. I am so upset that didn't happen. Like, it is the it is the most depressing thing to me that that was not the the role that that's not who got the role like and I would love to like if I like you know people are like if you go back in time you know would you stop nine eleven would you no I would go back in time and make sure Meatloaf <laughs> was was the person that took over as Phantom of the Opera because that is that could that could save the world okay right there that could have changed everything I was so upset oh like because I, I that would have been amazing like the, we would be talking about such a different movie. But yeah, that was that was my that that, that was my I, I I could not wait. I told Jake I was like, I'm gonna bring this up. It's not gonna have anything to do with anything we're talking about, but I have to bring it up on the podcast. You know, I just I was uh, you know, even if it's not true, it's now in my mind that that was a thing that could have happened. So yeah, meatloaf as the Phantom. Oh, I wish it had happened. That's I mean that's pretty incredible, man. I would. You see, I'm with you now. I want that to happen. Right. I was already, I was already in. Like yeah. as soon as you told me, I was just like, "Oh my god, this is the worst timeline." Somewhere out there in the multiverse, we got meatloaf <laughs> as <Right>. the Phantom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's incredible uh, because, like, honestly, man, like everybody out there who thinks we're going crazy right now, like, go listen to and out of hell and tell yeah. me that the vocals and the production value of that are not like Broadway-esque. Like, <laughs> like, That's the whole point of that album. It's Jim Steinman writing it, and he's writing Broadway songs for Meatloaf to sing. You know? I mean, yeah, it, that's yeah. really what he's doing. I mean, you know, or, or heck, go listen to, uh, you know, uh, I Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that. The very title of that song sounds like a Broadway song. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I, sounds I, like I, a Phantom of the Opera song. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Correctly <laughs> Correct. You're 100% correct. Um, the only other thing I'll say before, I know we're trying to wrap this up, but I, I have to, we haven't talked much about, like you said, the soundtrack. But when I was watching this again, I, I had this thought the first time I watched it, and I think I've seen this movie maybe like two or three or four times. Every time I watch it, I'm just like, you know, Emmy Rossum should have been bigger. Like, he really should have been. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, vocally, you know, yeah, unfortunately, because of how the movie is presented, I'm not going to say, like, she. I mean, she's perfectly fine in the role from an acting standpoint. She doesn't really get a whole lot to do just because of how the movie's presented, other than just be, like, you know, entranced by Gerard Butler. But vocally, she is killer in this movie. Absolutely. And, uh, the, and I found the other thing that I found, because I did want to figure out, like, is, like, everybody's singing. The only person that doesn't sing is Minnie Driver. And Minnie Driver's apparently a really good singer, but she can't do the opera diva notes that they that you have to do for Carlotta. Um, so like there's a there's someone singing for her, but everyone else sings their own songs. And Emmy Rossum, I think, is a standout. You know, I mean, of course, she does get you know like you know the 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 best songs really. Think of me. You know, um, you know, she gets the the little vocal runs in uh, in. Uh, 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 music of the night, yeah. you know, that really kind of set that song off. 
but yeah, he's really good, and and I'm just kind of amazed that I don't. He might have done more Broadway stuff that I don't know about, but I'm just kind of amazed that like you know he you know he really hasn't he wasn't a bigger star you know because like uh uh you know I mean I guess she's still technically you know doing stuff. She did Shameless for it seemed like you know a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that took up all of her time. Uh, but like, man, she was, she's fantastic in this. She really is. Yeah. Now that's um, extremely true. She was one of the surprises I had when I was doing some research on prep for this, this episode, because I just kind of expected her to be in a lot more than I had seen. Um, just like something about her her face and it could just be because again i watched this so many times when i was a kid that like i'm sure i just kind of got used to seeing her face but like her face just looked very familiar to me so when i looked up her imdb and looked up her, her film and tv credits and saw that like really the main thing she has done since then has been aimless which like i've i've heard is really good i don't really Based on what I know about that show, I don't think that show is really f- for me. But um, I've heard she's like awesome in it. But yeah, I was really surprised that she hadn't been in as much as I would have thought she had been in. She um, might not have wanted it. I mean, that happens with a lot of actresses, you know. And, and, and I mean, actresses, you know, like they just don't really want it. Uh, you know, they get really involved in one thing, you know. I mean, yeah. so. But it just it just seems like I mean she's just really good in this, you know. Like the only other thing I know her in, <clears throat> and I'm surprised you didn't bring this up, Al, um, because you should be old enough to do this. She's in the Disney Channel original movie Genius. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That you might not be old enough for that. That might be a that, <laughs> I always forget how long ago the, that was. I think that's like ninety nine or yeah. two thousand. Um, but that's the first thing I remember her in. Uh, yes, and like, yeah. so, like, so when when Family Opera came out, I was like, the Genius Girls and gonna sing like in a musical, like what's that gonna be, you know? Yeah. yeah uh, well, uh, Josh, I'm in return. I'm disappointed in the other big film that she was in that you have not brought up, because um, she was also um, in Dragon Ball Evolution. Yeah, I'm not bringing that up. Uh, I, I, <laughs> who is she? I mean, like, I didn't know that was a. I know. I remember when Dark Boy Evolution came out, but I didn't know she was in that. That's crazy. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's great. Weird one. Who's to be in? Like, like a classically trained like mezzo soprano goes and is like, "I'm gonna be in Dragon Ball Evolution." Like, what a weird. Huh. Yeah. Especially at that time where like anime was like still very ish and so when like an anime adaptation comes up and you're just kind of like yeah man i've got i've got solid faith in that being successful yeah maybe she's uh, a fan she was like i've got to do this it could be yeah she was just like that, that that's really the only explanation to make <laughs> yeah they're just like yeah she big into dragon ball and she was just like you're bringing it to live action i've got to i've got to be Oma, I have to be. Um, yeah. Incredible, yeah. But um, um, yeah, I was actually, um, I was also surprised to see that um, for some reason I could just really, really enjoy Gerard Butler to like an abnormal extent because I could have sworn he's been in way more good films than he has been. 
And like, he, he really hasn't. Bad films. He really has. He's been in a lot of really bad movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's weird because he's another guy I think is like pretty good at what he does, you know? Um, yeah. You know, and, and he, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it's weird, you know? So I, I, I don't know if people like, he, he seemed to almost react against 300. Like, he seemed to like almost like, like, I really don't want this to be who I am kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I really don't want to keep this these abs. You know, I really don't want to take the sure. effort to do that. Which I don't blame him. And so it seemed like you reacted against that. I know I, me and Jenny went to go see the movie, um, movie of Catherine Heigl, where he's the male chauvinist radio guy. Oh, mm. what's it called? Uh, is that, the, um, yeah, sounds, I mean, it's order to launch, but it's, yeah, it, yeah, it really doesn't matter. But anyway, I remember him that and like, he's, um, I mean, he's, he's, he's okay. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just a, it's a, you know, really like nonsensical, like almost like unnecessary movie that came out, you know, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, I think he's good. Obviously we talk about Patrick Wilson, who's pretty fantastic and just about everything, um, that he's in. Um, you know, I, I really like Patrick Wilson, you know, um, as an actor. So, yeah, I mean, it, the solid performances really all the way around, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know. I do too. It was almost kind of an inverse experience for Patrick Wilson as it was for Gerard Butler, because within a few years after this is when Wilson's career like really skyrocketed and took off like. Five years after this, he got the role um, as Owlman um, in Watchmen. Yep. And then uh, just a couple of years after that, he started to get all of his horror stuff that he was repeatedly in. And, like, he's an Aquaman now. Like, yeah. So it's really interesting. It's really interesting kind of inverse of trajectories there. Um, the film, um, I just looked it up that you were trying to think of the name of, was um, The Ugly Truth. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, I got you on that. Men will not bend to women if they're ugly. That's the point of that movie. Kind of a not not a, not a great movie. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, so there you go, everybody. Um, but um, yeah. And now, um, yeah. Um, as we close, I want everyone to think of the future we could have had, where the film trajectory of Heatloaf was going to be um, him playing Robert Paulson in Fight Club in 1999 to playing the Phantom of the Opera in 2004, and that's what we missed out on. Uh, so I want everybody to go to bed with that on their minds. But um, no, this um, this was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to kind of take something in a specific genre and try to examine it through the lens um of something else and for what it's worth i think there are legitimately enough horror themes and and ideas that occur in phantom of the opera to very much kind of justify its inclusion into the genre if not a a non-traditional one but um but um yeah everybody that's phantom of the opera now um now, um, the spooky season is starting to come to a close. Um, but if you 
um, wait and hang out with us towards the close of the month. Um, and if you listen very closely to the music of the night, then you will hear us doing one last episode for the traditional Horror Fest event. Uh, this one is going to be Josh's pick for this month. Uh, I won't spoil it, but I am. I'll just say I am really excited about it. Um, I'm pretty excited. And leave you all with that. Yeah, this is one of Josh's favorites, man. This is a horror yeah. film that Josh is 100% in on. Uh, totally. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm pretty excited about that. But um, So we will have one more episode of that. And other than that, keep your eyes and ears open for a special Horror Fest edition of the Star Wars EU or Ear Review, uh, where Jacob and I discuss a horror-themed Star Wars book. Ooh. And then keep your eyes and ears open continuously into November, where um, me and a special other fan and correspondent are going to have a very special episode as kind of a, a transitional period from spookiness to the end of the year. So you won't Oh, I'm cracking that, that I'm just letting you know. I'm, I'm oh, fantastic. I'm crashing it, just so you know. Fantastic. That's great. Absolutely. The more, the merrier. But, uh, can, um, I, can also plug, uh, my, me and Chase have just done a podcast where we talked for about four hours about the NBA. So, you know. Nice. Absolutely. Uh, Hell yeah. It'll be split into in two parts, so it'll be a little easier to uh, to digest. But, yeah, if you want to hear two guys ramble about the NBA, Phantom Course Fonts are there for you, man. Hey, I know I want to hear that, so there we go. Um, yes, yeah, so everybody, check out that. We've got a whole bunch of projects that um, are coming up to close out the year. Um, so thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for your support and your engagement. Um, if you're ever interested um, in giving just a little bit extra support, if you have it on you, then um, we do have um, a Patreon where the and of correspondence on there. Um, if you drop us a dollar, then you get access to uh, on the Discord channel uh, where we have a lot of really fun uh, discussions there. So um, once again, thank you very much. Um, just a reminder that Phantom is for everyone, including all you drama nerds out there. And horror nerds and drama nerds can find some common ground here with Phantom of the Opera. And in that way, we can be the example that all the other fandoms kind of ascribe to. So there you go. But um, everybody have a great night. Um, and, and please remember to be kind to one another. Thank you very much. <laughs>